Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am so glad to have you with me today for our very last show of 2022. Unbelievable. And this is a wrap on the third calendar year of the Home to Her podcast. I can't, and it's just wild to me. I will be back with you in 2023 after a short winter hiatus so I can hibernate a little bit and plan and dream about future episodes. Um, and as always, I want to hear from you. Who would you like to hear me interview? What topics do you want to hear me delve into? Um, send me a note at liz at hometoher.com or via Instagram or Facebook and let me know what you're thinking. And you can do that at any time, by the way. I love to, to get your thoughts and your comments. But yeah, I want to hear from you as I'm planning for the next year. Um, I also want to remind you my book, Home to Her, Walking the Transformative Path of the Sacred Feminine, is out in the world and available wherever you buy your books. And if you've read it and it provokes some thoughts or transformation or disagreement or whatever, I want to hear about that too. Send me a note. Um, and I would be so grateful for your reviews, especially on Amazon and Goodreads. Much like the show, reviews help others find this work. And given that the sacred feminine isn't a household topic for a lot of us, um, I think a lot of us need all the help we can get to find her. So I know I sure did. So if it would be in your joy, I would love to receive your, your reviews. And now let's get on with our show. All right. So if you're listening to this on its air date, which is December 23rd, that means it is one night before the Christian holiday, Christmas Eve. I guess technically the holiday is Christmas, but Christmas Eve feels like a holiday to me too. But Anglo-Saxon pagans knew this as Madrenacht, and my apologies to any German-speaking listeners if I've said that incorrectly, that is Mother's Night which feels so appropriate to me, even in the context of modern Christianity, because Jesus certainly wouldn't have arrived on this plane without the efforts of his mother, and also very likely the support of other women skilled with tending childbirths. I think because in the context of the current dominant religion, women are so often ignored, that also goes for the act of childbirth itself. But birth has always been women's business in both the act of birthing and until very recently, in the tending of women giving birth, too. Well, my guest today has done a beautiful service for us all by reimagining the story of the birth of Jesus through the eyes and the heart of a fictional midwife who attended Mary during his birth. And she has written a beautiful novel about this, and I can't wait to not only discuss this with her, but the sacred nature of childbirth in general, and what it means to reclaim and reimagine stories about this. So let's get into it. Bridget Seppel is the author of the new book, Birth Keeper of Bethlehem, from Woman Craft Publishing, which tells the fictional story of, is it Salome? Am I saying that right? Mm -hmm. Salome, okay. The midwife who attended Mary during Jesus' birth. She has spent the last 20 years supporting women and birthing people through all stages of pregnancy, labor, and parenting. A mother of four herself, she works as an antenatal teacher for the NCT, the NHS, a major UK maternity hospital, and birth companions, a charity supporting pregnant women in prison. 
She is the founder of an information resource all about the infant microbiome and runs workshops on parenting, brain development, and hypnobirthing. She has also contributed to and worked on the International Journal of Birth and Parent Education since its beginning. Bridget lives in Shropshire, England, with her husband and four children, and she is joining us from there today. Bridget, welcome. I'm so glad to have you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, yes. so, I'm so excited about this topic. I realized, um, okay, I'm drawing a blank on all the episodes I've done because there's been a lot, but I don't, I haven't talked about this that much. So, which is kind of crazy with the podcast about the sacred feminine. So this is going to be good. Uh, I mean, certainly it's come up, you know, for different women, but anyways, well, so the first place that I usually like to start with guests is getting a little bit of your spiritual background. And I find it so interesting to hear different stories from people about whether that uh, was a help to them and where they are now or a hindrance, because both of those are, you know, rich, rich things to explore. But I'd love to hear a little bit from you about that. Lovely. Uh, so I, my parents met in the 1960s at university and my mother was Welsh Methodist and my dad was Liverpool Catholic. And when they got married, none of my parents' family would go to the wedding, my dad's family rather, because she wasn't Catholic. So they had a huge falling out with the Catholic church. And my uh, my father is a, is a linguist, so he used to move around with the British Council setting up linguistics departments in different universities. So they, they sort of broke contact with my dad's family for a number of years and didn't really speak to them. And um, and we were overseas when, when the three of us were born, I'm one of three children. And so I wasn't actually baptised until I was eight because there was such a falling out with the Catholic Church. Now, my mum and dad kind of made peace with the grandparents um, because of us children. They wanted us to have a relationship with them. Uh, and uh, But it, it was always very tempered, my growing up, with this, that the Catholic Church was, well, wrong on a lot of things. The one thing that I love about sort of my spiritual background is that we were brought up to argue against it, the Catholic Church. We were brought up to be very ecumenical, to go to um, different uh, churches and not and, and see it all as being one. Um, for example, my parents have always been in favour of things like women priests, um, particularly having lived overseas. So, for example, my sister was born in Libya, uh, in Benghazi on the first day of the Six-Day War, which is a whole other story in itself. I was born in Uruguay, and my brother was born in Malawi, and then we also lived in Ghana in West Africa. Um, and to see how poverty impacts people, and sort of to and and they would be saying to us, you know, you you it's all very well being very sanctimonious about say contraception, but you can't if you're not looking after living people, if you're not able to um, support families and things. So I've always had this wonderful openness and challenging. And you know, I, my parents would talk about things like the Gnostic Gospels that to understand the New Testament, you had to know the ones that weren't in there. And this was from a very young age. And now I started to realize this wasn't normal, um, that this wasn't most people's experience of Catholicism. I also loved the fact that there was never in our house guilt. There's no, there's no, you know, if in, in our house, Christianity is about love. It's about love. I do apologize. My dog's decided to come and stand next to me and wag his tail, which is just the thing you heard hitting something. <laughs> to encourage him to just move somewhere else. Bless him. Um, but it, but, but not about guilt. And you know, it, it's sometimes I went to a, I went to a wedding the other day. It was very lovely. 
Um, but all the hymns, um, I can't remember what denomination it was, all the hymns were very, uh, saved a wretch like me. And it struck me at the time, I remember thinking, that's not a language that we were brought up with. Does that make sense? Christianity was about love and inclusion and everything. Now, I recognise that this is not the experience of Catholicism most people have had. Um, and and so I, I think that's that's really influenced. Now, where I am now is I don't, um, I, while, while I did sort of, uh, was eventually we, we, were, we sort of were brought up Catholic from about the age of, of eight, as I say, we sort of started to go to church. I struggle a lot with it because it's not changed, it's not moved, it doesn't respect women, it has all these problems, there's the institution and, and things. So there's a huge gulf between faith and and church, if that makes sense. And I'm also, and it, it's so much like in your book, Home to Her, um, that that thing that I am so open to the the, the sacredness of, of the earth and the cycles and everything, and, and a thing that is not reflected in the religion that is put in front of me. Does that make sense? Not a big answer to the question, but it's it's so it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting place. And and the women of Catholicism, so you know, which we'll come on to. Uh, but the but the adoption of saints, Saint Bridget, for example, who obviously nice. I'm going to be a fan of patron childbirth, um, but coming from an ancient, just literally being um, you know, overtaken by the Catholic Church and presented as theirs when she never was. So there's, there's, I think, with a lot of people who were brought up uh, Catholic, in whether that's been very positive or very negative, you know it's not all you. You know it's not all of how you see things. You know it's not your experience, and it's finding your way to that, that voice and that understanding that sits with sits with you. Uh -huh, next question. Yes, well, and, and I was going to, I mean, do you feel like, do you identify, would you call yourself Catholic now or no? Um, I think we've been, because we've been Catholic, it's very hard to ever call yourself not, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> My husband might say he's a recovering Catholic. <laughs> I think I'm a distant Catholic. I think I'm a distanced, uh, separated, possibly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. But I don't. I don't feel that 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 represents where I am. Yeah. The, yeah. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I feel like I've talked to so many people on the show too, where there's the. Uh, well, I mean, we could use it in the context of Mary. So many people I talk to who have a relationship with Mary, um, as I do now, and do not experience her in any way as part of. Uh, like, I don't. I don't interact with her as part of formal Christ, Christian religion. Like, she is something that is. Um, too large and beautiful and expansive to be put in a, a box <laughs> of that sort. Um, but yeah, well, I, I know, so then I'm curious about, you know, the show's about the sacred feminine. And so I'm, I'm curious what that, if that language means anything to you at all and um, how you became aware, or was there always a knowing of this idea of the divine in female form or feminine form? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think my parents are going to sound like they're not very good Catholics at all, but there was never any question in our house that God had to be male. Does that make sense? My mother's a very strong, wonderful, um, you know, she was a you know, Welsh Methodist background. They make them, they make them good and make them strong. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it, there was no question that, that God only had to be male. That didn't make any sense. 
you know, and you go through phases, don't you? I do remember as a late teenager being in mass and kind of always in my head saying her instead of he as my own act of just, I'm not seeing this, I'm not feeling this, I'm not there. Um, and, uh, and I, 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 I'm sure it's you, it is, it is, it is how God doesn't have a gender, but you call him a her and everybody loses it. Don't mm-hmm. that idea that you can't do that. Whereas for me, I'm perfectly, perfectly comfortable. And in fact, a design, a divine feminine makes more sense. The, the mother, the, the source, the, the everything. Um, it, it is something I am sitting with. I, if you if if you look at the 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 ways that I interact with religion, it is to the Bridget, the Mary, the 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 female of everything. Um, I think I'm still sort of sorting out in my head. But I I think the interesting thing is I don't feel a pressure to label it or do anything. I'm I'm good with this this big thing that I don't necessarily understand, and, and I'm okay with that. But it certainly doesn't has never really felt male for me, and I think this is the experience of so many people that I speak to, that in the moments of difficulty, in the moments of of trial, it is to the female sacred that they feel the presence and they and they and they pray, and I'm definitely definitely in that camp. Yeah, me too, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in fact, prayer is maybe one of the ways in which. Uh, I've, I've gotten to know her best. It's a completely different conversation praying to a female, the female face of God for me than the male face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Well, tell me about your journey into birth work. Um, you've know, been doing this a long time. What called you to it? I have. So my first born, my Alex, was born after a long and induced labor um, that ended in an emergency cesarean. And looking back now there are so many things that could have been done differently if i'd had the knowledge now almost 22 22 years ago of what i know now that birth could have gone down an entirely different path but we were you know it was our first born we didn't know you kind of think that everything will go and i i have to say that i came out of that birth quite traumatized really quite traumatized i would have um flashbacks and all sorts and and couldn't think about it without crying. Classic sort of birth trauma, PTSD, we would think of it as now, but it wasn't labelled as that um, 22 years ago. Um, and so what I did with that upset was that I started to get involved with a local charity and I would be there sort of supporting other new parents after they'd given birth and we had coffee mornings and did things like that and nice stuff because I needed that for me as much to be around other people. And I was with a lovely American woman called Amy McLean who has gone on to become one of my very good friends. And she and I uh, ran this group together and it was her who said to me, she said, I'm thinking of training as an antenatal teacher. I think you should as well. Um, and and so we trained together. Uh, that was it was started in 2000 and I think it was 2002 we started. Um, 2000 and it, it sort of it went from there because I was working with parents and I was seeing all these people. And it meant that when I had my second um, child in 2002, uh, I was about eight months into my training, something like that. And it made such a difference to my birth because I knew enough. Now, in those days, once you'd had a cesarean once, you always had a cesarean. Um, But I knew enough. I went into the hospital. I managed to get, and this is a powerful word, isn't it, permission Mm -hmm. to be able 
to have a VBAC, a vaginal birth after cesarean. And I was threatened and bullied and 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 all sorts of nonsense said to me about how I would damage myself and my baby. Um, and I and I stood my ground and I had my vaginal birth and it was the most amazing experience. It was such a different experience. And one of the consultants um, who, who came in while I was in labor and it was in the days of the ward thing. So she literally came in with her entourage of students while I was in labor and said, oh, I see you've gone into labor, you know, any sign of pro any lack of progress and you're straight off to theater. And I turned at her and I said, and you know, no one spoke to uh, her name was Miss Weaver at that point. No one spoke to Miss Weaver and I said, Miss Weaver, I said, I'm having my baby. You can leave this room now. And all the students were aghast because nobody spoke to Miss Weaver like that. But I was like, I am in my power. You, you are not raining on my parade now. Wow. You leave. And, uh, and she came to see me after the birth and I stood up with Estella, my daughter, and I said, look at me. I feel better the day after my birth than I did a month after my cesarean. And she nodded and off she went. And to be fair, I have since helped write the VBAC guidelines there. I helped run the clinics and things. So she did, she did change her tune. She did learn from wow. that. Um, but it was, and it was such a transformative experience it was so healing all of that upset from the first birth was gone and it was so um you know powerful powerful to to birth Estella um in my own power and and really feel that and it, it, had, it had taken so much effort to get there and don't get me wrong I'm not saying that there weren't moments in labor where I didn't say I don't want to do this I think I might have made a huge mistake <laughs> Ow. Yes, we all do that, right? I mean, isn't that part of it? We are supposed to hit the point where you're like, no, I changed my mind. <laughs> I don't want anyone thinking about me saying I had a wonderful experience that the whole thing was just, oh, um, because that's not actually, but it was, it was such a changing experience. And then I went on to have another one and finally a water birth. And all of this time I was, I, I hit the ground running. I've been teaching at the women's hospital now for 20, almost 20 years. Um, and and just spreading that message of empowerment and and trying to change things because it's it's the situation worldwide in terms of midwifery is challenging, really challenging. Mm -hmm. Yes, I and I you know so I write about in my book um, my experience having my my second child. Well, I wrote about both of them very briefly, um, but with my with my son. Um, because there was a lot of transformational things that were happening for me at that time that made me want to have uh, him as an un unmedicated birth. Um, as a natural experience, I remember talking to my doctor, who was male, and um, telling him that I wanted to have this natural childbirth. And he had written like this handbook. He was sort of famous for having around my local community for I've written this handbook about birth. Um, and some of it was helpful. I think it's, you know, he's trying to help new moms, like they're, everybody's scared and nervous, like newly pregnant folks. So, but at the end of the book, there's this whole um, mocking section where he and his wife, when they were having their first child, were making fun of people who had birth plans and how, you know, ridiculous that they want, you know, this music on and this and that and how absurd and they have no idea what they're getting into because it's so painful and what a dumb thing that is. So I kind of had a feeling like he was not, you know, he's going to give me a hard time about wanting to have this natural delivery. And when I told him, he, he literally rolled his eyes at me and then just sighed, this big exasperated sigh. And he said, oh, haven't you done this before? Why? And uh, 
I was like, well, because I want to have this experience. I want to know what it's like. And so he rolled his eyes and he sighed again. And he said, fine, I'm going to refer you to the midwife in our practice, which turned out to be the best thing ever. I mean, she was fabulous and I'm so grateful. And she was working that day. She delivered um, my son. So although I, how do you feel about that language when you say someone delivered your baby? Because I feel like that kind of takes away from the mother, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. We, we we absolutely try to think about you birthing your baby yourself and the midwife is there to help. But your your obstetrician, gynecologist, um, yeah. that's so typical. That is so typical. I mean, uh, the royals, Meghan Markle got it, didn't he? That that one of the, it was a British obstetrician who stood up at a, at a huge um, Royal College of Obstetricians meeting and said something like, oh, I hear that Meghan Markle is planning on giving birth with uh, with a doula. Um, and a willow tree. Let's see how that goes for her. And mocked, mocked a pregnant woman for her choices. And that makes my blood boil, makes my blood boil. It is so rude. It is so condescending. It is so patronizing. And it is that dreadful abuse of power that, oh, you silly little women, look at you. You don't know what you're doing. You know, here we are to save you. And it shows an utter disregard for the sanctity, dare I say, the transformation experience, the power that women and birthing people have, you know, in, in control of their own bodies. Yes. And and that was that was a couple of years ago. That was for their first baby. I don't know when that was. Yeah, yeah my son is eight now, so we're not talking that long ago. Um yeah, and I would have, I would imagine he's still he's still at it, that doctor. I would imagine he's still handing out that handbook and you know. Although I think he's added a second midwife to his practice, so I'm pretty sure like I wasn't the only person who was headed down this path, but yeah. That's a good sign that there's a second one, yeah? Yeah. Um, I think within women there is a, a growing realisation because there is there are more conversations on social media, there are more conversations in the public domain. Um, there are lots of questions being asked about why would women choose to free birth? Why would you choose to give birth without any medical assistance. And there are two there are two threads to that. One is just complete empowerment and I can do this. And the other is it's so flipping bad, I don't want to go to that particular unit. Mm -hmm. And that's not true of all units. Some units are absolutely lovely, but you know, that's the side that doesn't get talked about. What is going on that means that, that, that people don't feel safe to give birth in a system? Yes, yeah, well, the whole thing, um... I'm sure you've seen, well, yes, I, I know you've got lots of thoughts about this, but, um, and I understand that the need to keep mother safe and, um, I, I get that. And that, you know, even in, in the book that you wrote, you know, you, I mean, these are dangerous times for, uh, for women to give birth, right? Like the people died in childbirth quite frequently. And I, um, think it's such a blessing that that doesn't happen as much as it used to, at least in certain parts of the world, um. But I know it really struck me with both of my children, especially the second one, because I was I was much more conscious and aware of these things. Just the the unnaturalness of all of it, you know, of it, how natural it felt being at home, pacing yeah. back and forth in my bedroom, maybe bouncing on my um, birthing ball, breathing, you know, in my home setting with my dog running back and forth, and my daughter, you know, with her nanny in the other room, like all of that felt really natural than to be in the hospital with these bright lights and, um, it, you know, sterile environment. And it just, it, 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 it's, it's bizarre. The whole thing feels really, yeah. 
not the way anybody would want to. I don't know. I would think we would all want to be in our cozy bed, you know, like surrounded by our support team, uh, you know, and to bring our child into the world, into that environment too. Um, I don't know. Yeah. If you think of birth as, as just a process, then that's okay. If you think of it as a rite of passage, if you yeah. think of it as a life event, it's not. So one of my classic examples is, you know, weddings. At the end of the day, in a wedding, the only important thing that matters is that two people make vows. That's it. That's And everything else that goes around it is unnecessary, you could argue, um, and just an add-on. That doesn't matter. But it does. It matters hugely that we have the people there we want, that we feel nice in the stuff that we're wearing, that the food's nice, that the day goes well. And yet we treat birth like the only the only important thing is that the baby comes out well in that case that's true of weddings only important thing is that people make vows nothing else should count nothing else is important neither of those things are true um, and it, it's one of the things that i that i really try to get at in in birth keeper is how birth was, was treated as sacred Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I, I just was, well, first of all, I read this book and it's a beautiful book. I really want to encourage all of you, even if you're not, you know, it's, it, it isn't really a Christian story, is it, Bridget? It's just, it's a story of a baby being born at a time when birth was considered sacred. And um, there are so many details that you wove into that, that I assumed, like, I want to hear about your research because I had a feeling you're not making this stuff up. Like, this is probably how how it was. But I had, I was like, oh, I wish that I could have given birth in this way. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So you're quite right. It's not a book about Jesus. It's a book about birth. It's a book about the transformational journey of, of labor and and how historically, as you say, women were tended women. And this 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 quiet world that we never hear about. It's about ancient wisdom and skills to save babies and herbs, but but also this this power of walking the coals of birth and coming out the other side. But how it was, and in so many cultures, treated as a very sacred time. That this, in particularly for Salome, she sees, and from because she's a midwife and her mother was and her grandmother before her that her role is a very sacred role. Now, in terms of she being a Jewish woman, attending another Jewish woman, there were rituals, there were things to do. But even in modern Judaism, and I don't wish to speak for that because it's it's not my it isn't it is not my religion, which importance on birth as being a sacred moment. And regardless of your denomination, I think it is. I think it is this phenomenal moment where a new human um emerges and and becomes part of our world and however many births you go at and and i am an go to and i am an antenatal teacher not a midwife but i have been at a lot of a lot of births um sometimes as a doula sometimes um just in in my my work at the hospital but it's it's the most extraordinary um thing every single time it is magical and monumental and and i think it it it, it should be sacred not. I remember going to a workshop uh, many years ago, and the question was asked of, of the group, you know, what would, talking about problems in modern maternity, and I was, and so the question put, was put to us all, what would make um, uh, birth better? And I said, if we treated every birth like it was sacred, because then you wouldn't put somebody into an awkward position, you wouldn't override their, their dignity, you wouldn't 
um, override their sort of their rights, their voice. If you thought that this moment, you know, that this was a this was a special moment, and I and I really embraced that idea in the book because throughout history, so often it has been seen as such a a gift from God, and whichever in that this you know the arrival of a child safely was always considered to be that and treated as such yes if you think about it i think it's really strange that we don't have more cultural touch points and dialogue around the sacredness of childbirth i mean if you are really trying to understand the concept of divinity and how life comes into the world right and i i think we are all um aspects of divinity you know, so that, so we can, in fact, look at our small human experiences and the experiences that we see in nature to understand the nature of the divine, right? And if how strange that you wouldn't look at this act, like, and, and, and there's so much power in it, right? I mean, like that moment when you have life, like moving through you and out of you, and you are right there, you, you write about this a lot in, in the book, which I thought was beautiful, right there on the cusp of death, right there on the cusp between birth and death, you are right there at that portal. I mean, I cannot think of anything more divine than that. Yeah. And you're quite right. Historically, it was a very dangerous time. Yeah. And, you know, and, and death would be uh, stalking the room, I think. And that's why the midwife's role was so important to protect. And this is one of the things that, that that can sometimes get misconstrued when you talk about, you know, birth being more physiological, being a sacred thing. That is not to take away the safety of it. This is not to put people in danger. And it's always assumed that you mean if you mean this, then you must don't care about cesareans. I would not have my lovely Alex if we couldn't have been born by cesarean when he needed to. I might not be alive. You know, it's okay. Yes. But but the um, the skills that we lost the skills that we lost, the, the knowledge that was wiped out in the, so particularly the 14th and 15th century in the, in the witch burnings and, and, and so forth, the, the traditions that will have been buried because to do, there was that point, and you will know the Latin name for the Catholic um, uh, document that, that described witchery, witchcraft, um, maleficent. Uh -huh. Yeah, the Malleus Maleficent. I don't know. You know what? I'm gonna. Put, I do know it. I'll put it in the show notes for people. But I know exactly what you're talking about. To actually heal somebody, to use herbs to heal somebody, could be enough to get you killed. Yes. Which just beggars belief, because surely that you know, that is the thing. So, this is what the the book reflects on: is all of these skills and support that we had. Now I remember my mother telling me that that my my grandmother and her grandmother before her would be in you know in the village, they would go and they would be there at births and they would also go and help lay out the bodies at death as well. But I think that over the generations, particularly, so much wisdom has been has been lost. So we think of a natural birth, and I don't like that word as if cesarean's unnatural, but you know what I mean, right. but a logical birth, and there's a lot of discussion about normal birth, natural birth, but with compassion, we use that word for here, that that means unsafe, but it would have been a lot less so when you had the skills that Salome has. Right. That yes. Yes. And I want to pause for just a second, um, because I'm so glad that you said that about cesareans. I think that 
um, anybody who gives birth is 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 often walking on that edge of shame or guilt or something about oh I didn't do the birth right or maybe I didn't have I had an epidural and so I missed out on that and I just want to boom let's just stop that right here like however actually I feel kind of emotional talking about this because it's it's such a heavy thing to carry and so I, I you know in no way do I want to put that on anybody who's listening to this and maybe had a, a, a birth that was different, you know, I, it, it, it's, it's all okay. It's all okay. We are all, um, we're all bringing life into the world the best way that, that we know how and uh, following the advice that we get and all of that. So just, there should be no shame, no shame and no guilt in this space. Okay. Absolutely. And, and birth is magical. However, a baby comes out. Oh yeah. Yes. Still extraordinary to, to bring this life out of you. But I think that's really important. And for those who, who have been traumatized by birth, because birth trauma is huge. An Australian study came out recently that said a third of Australian women suffer from birth trauma. One wow. Just horrendous. Um, and the numbers are, you know, it's sort of in the UK, underestimated at 30% of um, families suffering, women struggling with postnatal depression and illness after birth. And I would think here in the United States, I don't know what those numbers are, but I think it would be especially bad for any uh, communities of color who, um, you know, are already getting uh, uh, less uh, quality medical care to begin with. So we in the UK, we had a, um, a report came out recently called the Embrace, Embrace um, Report. And this is the one that found that in the UK, a black woman is five times more likely to die in childbirth. Um, wow. I, I feel like I've read, I'll look for listeners and I might dig around a bit and see if I can find something to put in the show notes, but I feel like I've read something similar in the United States as well. Yeah. So so we need to be very mindful in terms, and, and I, the, what I was trying to say, get to was this, is that if you didn't have the birth experience that you were hoping for, if it had to go down a different path, it is still your birth and it is still something very sacred. Um, but there, there should be no guilt because there are so many things involved in that. And part of that is the system that has potentially changed the path for you through, through and there's no, and it's so hard not to be taken by that system. So that is not something you can be guilty about if this is something that is far beyond your control. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, you know, love and kindness to those who, who struggle, because I did, um, yes. and absolutely feel that. Well, and I'd love for you to talk to you a little bit about your work as an antenatal um, teacher and what that means, as I know for, for me, one of the most shocking things after my daughter was born, my firstborn um, arrived, I remember how well cared for I felt as I throughout the pregnancy. I really did. I, I, the doctor was seeing me every week. The nurses were nice. You know, I, it was just a beautiful thing. And then my daughter arrives and it was like, okay, you're done. I mean, no one seemed, and I was falling apart. I mean, I think I probably had a postpartum depression. Didn't know that. I mean, the only, and the only person that asked me about that was actually my daughter's pediatrician. Uh, and, and you know, there was no, I, I saw my, my doctor for a six week checkup and he's like, you're good. See you in a year. And that was that. And, um, it was so shocking, so shocking to realize like, Oh, nobody actually cares about me. This was all about the baby. Like, and of course I want my baby to be cared for, but I really felt, um, 
my mental well-being, my emotional well-being, it all felt expendable. And so I wonder if you if you see that, especially people with birth trauma in your work or or you know, what what are you what are you encountering in that work? Oh, unbelievably so. Unbelievably so. Um, and your six-week check with your doctor um, in, in the UK with the GP is supposed to include your mental well-being. That's one of the big things in the UK that you're meant to be checking on. But I think this is another thing that we've lost all around the world. And I talk about this a lot in the book. There's not a culture. So there's a lovely book called Why Postnatal Recovery Matters by um, Dr. Sophie Messenger. And when she was researching this book, we're all asking everybody that we teach about um, postnatal customs in different um, in, around the world. Do you know, we've not found a culture yet where at some point in history, women weren't looked after between 10 and 40 days. Wow. So the mother's generation, had she been in the UK, would, would have stayed in hospital for 10 days after the baby was born. So you didn't have to do any cooking, any cleaning, any jobs, you stay at home. China, there is still the sitting the month. I've been talking, I've been teaching a lot of Korean families recently, um, and they were all women saying, oh, their mother or their mother-in-law is coming over from Korea and staying for a month, and they will do no work, they will do no jobs, no housekeeping. There's lots of customs all around the world about warming food. So whether that's spicy warming or physically warming, um, there's always this spicy food um, element, warm, warming. You see it across South America still. It's still quite prevalent um, in, in places like Ecuador and Mexico. Uh, again, where women are, there's, there's all these warming techniques, um, which is literally mother roasting of lighting fires close to women and, and, and warming their bones after birth. The Chinese sitting the month is based on women not getting cold as well. So there's, the, but it, what's, absolutely fascinating is everywhere has done it everywhere seems to have done it what is it about the warm like is it just like nurturing kind of holding or um, think, or is well, it like a medical thing that you think is happening there as well i think it's about there's and i talk about this in the book that after birth women are so open and raw and in and i think of that in two ways i think of that sort of spiritually because of this this great passing through of a new life and that that spiritual experience of going through birth but also physically you know the, the womb contracting down um and i don't know what it is about warming but it, it's it, it, it you always pay attention when every culture does something yeah wow. i think that that's the key in there and what happens in absence of that so imagine if when you got home with your first baby somebody had been around all the time to keep you company. All you had to do was eat, sleep, feed, repeat with your baby. You'd have people to talk to so you wouldn't get lonely or bored. Lots of food, no other worries about everything else to take care of. Because those early days with a newborn when they are awake every two, three hours are exhausting. Exhausting. And after birth particularly so. So all you have to do is nap, feed them, eat some nice food, have a chat, nap, sleep. Until by the time even 10 days later or eight, eight 10 days later, you're recovered, you are ready to face the world again. And in absence of that, in Britain, you can go home after birth in as little as a six hour discharge. So six hours after you've given birth, you're going home. And then there's the shopping to be done, the meals to be cooked, the, the problem of visitors and all these sorts of things. And we wonder why new parents are exhausted, why they are um, struggling with their mental health why breastfeeding doesn't work out and genuinely i don't care how you choose to feed your baby honestly the only person on the planet who's allowed to have an opinion on how you feed your baby is you but 85 percent of people who didn't stop breastfeeding didn't want to 
right? You know, if you don't want to breastfeed, don't breastfeed. If you want to stop, stop. But if you wanted to and you and you can't, there is a recognized phenomenon of breastfeeding grief. Where women decades later feel sad that their journey didn't work out as they wanted to. And I know it because of what I do, wherever I am, you can ask my teenagers, as soon as people hear what I do, they'll tell me their birth story, they'll tell me their feeding story. I am I love, I love, I love to hear people's stories. I love to journey with them on their stories. Um, and so often it's I really wanted to feed and I couldn't for two weeks, and they're sad. They are so sad. Now that upsets me. Not how you choose the baby, but that grief, that sadness, that loss that you did not get to do what you wanted to do. And this is what we lose when we don't care for new parents. They are exhausted. One of the things that I always talk about, because I, I do classes on sort of brain development and, and the like, if I say the problem then is that the baby becomes the problem. If I can just put them down, if I can just leave them for a little bit longer, then I can go and do all these jobs that I need to do. Now, human babies aren't faulty. They're doing precisely what human babies need to do, which is be close to their grown-ups all the time, mm -hmm. have heartbeat, breathing, temperature regulated, and their brain growing. But it becomes a problem when you've got this massive long list of other things that you have to do. You see what I mean? Yes. And also, I think, because I'm, I'm, of course, I'm relating this back to my own experiences, and especially when my firstborn um, arrived. And I, Mom, if you're listening to this, too, my mother stayed with me for a month after my daughter was born. And that was a huge help. I was so great, so grateful that we had that time with her. Um, but I think for me as well, there was such a loss of identity. I, I really identified as this, like, I'm a very powerful businesswoman. And now my only function is to be like a cow and feed this, this little beast that seems to not like me at all. She had reflux and, you know, it, it took a little while for us to connect. Um, and so I think that step, it, I was constantly wanting to get away in those early days. And I think it was because the loneliness and also just the overwhelm of the whole thing without the wraparound support that I feel like you describe in, um, in your books that, you know, I, I just kept thinking how much easier it would have been or, um, you know, even I think my mother did not have the same experience. I think it was love at first sight with both of her children. And for me, it took a little bit longer because it was just such a shock to my system. And then I felt shame on top of that too. And so I, you know, like, oh, I'm not that kind of mother, you know, like I was actually Googling stories in the middle of the night as I'm feeding her, like, does anybody else feel this way? Like, what have I gotten myself into? And I feel like all I came across were stories of mothers who were terrified their babies were going to die if they put them down. And not. whereas I felt like I, I'm going to, um, I've just lost my entire sense of self. Um, and so wait, where am I going? With that? Where am I going with that? I guess I'm just thinking of that wraparound support and how much, how much, oh, there's just so many opportunities for improvement in the way that we do this. And, and I think it is important that we talk about loss of identity, and I do in my classes. And I will be quite honest, I will say, you know, I loved, I loved Alex when he was born. You, you do. And I didn't have, you know, <laughs> another thing we described. Some people will have their Lion King moment. This is my child, and I love them, and all the <laughs> Right. And most of us don't. It's actually more normal not to have the Oh, rush of love, because you've just been through an incredible experience. And I talk about this after a number of the births in here, that women immediately after birth, there's a there's a there's a look. And once I tell you, you'll never not see it. 
it, immediately after the birth, there's a look of, of, of shock and awe and grief and just and, and smile at the same time. But it's this, this shot of a look across the face first and this huge surprise. Now, whether or not you have the rush of love, I think we need to talk to new, new moms a lot more about the loss of identity because you're no longer defined by what you do. You, you, as you say, you just seem to eat, feed, sleep, repeat, and oh, I've got leaky breasts again. Great, you know, I used to be quite a response to what happened, and I, I do try to be quite honest about this and talk about this and say I went through a grieving period after I had Alex for my own life, and I didn't want to be there and I didn't want to not have him, but I recognised that nothing was going to be the same again and I know some parents they have their, their babies and they don't drop a beat and they put them in a backpack and go on and carry on doing exactly what they were doing before but that wasn't my experience and I think it is okay to have a sense of loss but it's it's putting that into the context of things change in life they do you know I'm 52 if I was still acting like I was when I was 26 it wouldn't you know my, it, it's quite right that my life has moved on it, it's not a good look <laughs> 52 <laughs> So there are different stages in it, but I think we need to be more honest and say, actually, this is a, a massive process, which which is where it comes back to this continuity of care. So Salome sees women through the pregnancy, yes. she's there from the birth, she builds a relationship with them, and then she looks after them postnatally. But the whole village is the whole town knows that women need looking after postnatally. There's a protected time, there are rituals, and there are there's a real resurgence of this. You'll see it across the, the world of, of doing things like the, the belly massage, the wrapping of women after they've given birth, the um the saying no to the guests, because there's something about, you know, guests and newborns. They love a newborn. The fresher, the better, apparently. But you have tiny firstborn time that's a very sacred time for you as a small new family, extended family, um, that, that should be protected and should just only have people around who are going to feed you and nurture you and let you enjoy. Now, if some um, people do want to get out and see more people, that's fine but it should start from that care. And I think that if that the if we do that, if we look after new parents better, and, and I speak for partners, dads as well, you know, they go back to work after a couple of days or two weeks in the UK, they get patted on the back, everyone says, well done, you're a dad now, and treat them like nothing's changed and everything's changed. Oh, <laughs> no, I, in some ways I think it's, it, it, well, I'm not going to say harder, but it, it, there's just a equally challenging moment for um, the the partner that did not give birth because I know, uh, I mean, because at least if you're carrying a child, like you are aware of things changing constantly, you know, what's going to happen. I just, I remember my partner when, when our firstborn arrived, he was just like, I mean, he, uh, he was shell shocked. He was like, Oh my God, this is real. We have a person to take care of, you know, in a way that I was shell-shocked in a different way, but I knew we had a person coming, you know, like that, that she came out of me. I knew that was going to happen. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm in complete agreement. So, so the, the book tries to address all of this. It addresses what we've lost. It addresses the knowledge that has gone, the herbs. Um, so I bought, I bought one with me to, you know, sort of show you the, the Jericho Rose and things like that. These things that used to be used in childbirth and all of these, these 
these beautiful techniques. Now you see it a lot. The, there's a big uh, movement called the spinning babies movement. I don't know, you know, founded by Gail Tully and uh, about repositioning babies when they get into awkward positions. So you don't just have to go to cesarean. You can help get baby back into it. And I think the thing is that this is a knowledge that we would have had. Yeah. People re-embracing the postnatal period, people talking and, and social media has its ills, but it also has its benefits. You know, people have been more honest about the reality of motherhood and parenting and just the sheer, you know, this is so overwhelming, I don't know what I'm doing. And you can find that other voice who goes, oh, yeah, I felt like that too. Oh, don't worry, you're quite normal. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. I mean, I've thought this a lot. God has blessed the millennials and the younger generations who are sharing all of this. I feel like I was just right a little bit too early. You know, people are still putting the pretty spin on everything. <laughs> when my kids were born, I'm I'm so grateful for anybody who's who's advancing that conversation and just making it more whatever transpires to be quote normal because it is. Well, the group I did my antenatal classes with, I was the first to break ranks. I was the first to go, this is really hard. I nearly ran away yesterday. <laughs> I said it. There was a damn burst of, oh, I'm so glad you said that. I couldn't think of it all, but like, everything is perfect and my life is wonderful and I love my baby. And, and I was like, well, I do, but oh my goodness me, I'm tired. Yes. And I'm so overwhelmed. So can you tell our listeners um, who wouldn't have the context, Jericho Rose, what's that? Tell us about that. What? So one of the herbs that you see um, that we talk about in the Birth Keeper of Bethlehem, I'm going to show this up, is called Jericho Rose, and it grows across the Middle East. And can and you it, talk about what it looks like for our listeners who might not be able to see it? Yeah. So it starts life as like a small ground-based, almost like a sort of a small greeny blue leaves. I think, I'm not very familiar with mustard plants, but I believe it looks a bit like a mustard plant, very low on the ground. And it doesn't last like that very long. It dries up, and one I'm holding in my hand now looks like a piece of tumbleweed. It looks like this knotted piece of gnarled sort of um, branches with tiny little seed pods in it that are held tight. So it kind of, imagine holding your hands in front of you and closing your fingers up on themselves. So it's as if it's closed up. It has got a handful-like quality to it. And inside are these tiny little beads of seeds. So it dries up and it waits in the desert until the rains come. And when the rains come, it, they're sometimes called the resurrection plant because it reopens and it comes back to life and the seed pods ping out the seeds. So it, it can wait for years until the waters come and then it will reanimate. And it was traditionally used in birth. So it would be put into water to reanimate it. And the faster it reanimated was supposed to indicate how quickly the labor would go uh, for the birthing uh, the birthing mother. But she would also sip the, 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 the liquid wanted in water, which was said to um, strengthen the womb and help prevent excessive bleeding or hemorrhaging as well. And, you know, there are so many of the herbs. So people know things about like using uh, lavender in labor as a smell, but that was always been used. Raspberry leaf tea is a classic. Now, the evidence does suggest it doesn't bring on labor, but it does have an impact on the womb. And what I find quite remarkable is there isn't every society that has raspberries has used raspberry leaf in, in childbirth or associates raspberry leaf with childbirth. Wow. And so all of these beautiful um, customs and traditions and ways of helping. And 
that that con that continuity of care. I know I keep coming back to it, but it's so important. Um, Dr. Sarah Wickham is a, she's a wonderful um, uh, midwife who writes a lot about birth and and very evidence based, and she's she's marvelous. And she comes again from a line of midwives, her mum and her grandmother, and she said that when she was little, the midwives were the women who knitted. So they would go to a birth and they would sit in the corner and knit, and. Uh, even in hospital births, they would be knitting in the corner. And this was stopped because it was considered very unprofessional. Midwives had to be doing something. She said, but they've missed the point. They were in the room, keeping that woman company while she labored in her own power. Now, if you were a laboring woman and your midwife's knitting in the corner, do you have anything to worry about? No, because if she's oh, still knitting, there's not a problem. Right, she's not gonna sit there and let you die. Right, she's, yeah. <laughs> wow. Knitting, you're all right. You've got somebody there just keeping an eye on it. A couple of them there chatting, just, you know, nice conversation with you, without you, whatever you need to do in the time, but being around. And that was considered unproductive. That was considered unnecessary. And I have, I, you know, I've been speaking to a number of student midwives over the years. So in the UK, we have a huge problem in midwifery that for every 30 midwives who qualify, 29 won't practice. Wow. Won't. Why is that? Midwifery is so underfunded. Um, it's so in crisis. It's there's long hours, incredible stress at work. Midwives are leaving in droves, um, and and so you know this pressure was being, and so they can't be with women. They're not allowed to be with women, um, and that's literally what the word translates to, being with women. And and you can, and, and this that that little message of everything's fine. Just get on, labor. I'm here if you need me. That's completely gone. And this is what I'm trying to try and stimulate. I want midwives to remember why they went into midwifery. I want birthing women, birthing people to remember that actually you are the product of hundreds of generations doing this successfully. And it is more likely that you will do it successfully than not if you are put in the right situation, if you are given the right support. And the beauty and the sacredness and you know back to your conversation of the divine feminine yeah the thing that really i wanted to write this is it came to me on a christmas eve this story salome arrived in my head fully formed i knew exactly who she was wow what i really really wanted to tell think about was mary as human mary as a ordinary human giving birth a long way from home scared a 14-year-old girl. 14-year-old girl. Yes. And for those of you who don't know about Salome, who haven't heard about a midwife, in the Jewish custom, of course, women need to be separated from men even during their period, even during menstruation, and for two weeks, you know, for a week or two weeks afterwards. Um, forgive me if I got that a bit wrong. Um, so there is no way, unless it was an absolute emergency, that a Jewish man would be at a birth. So if she had given birth on the road, Joseph would have attended. But if they made it to Bethlehem, then there was a midwife. There's absolutely not have been in there, right? Oh, there's no way. And this idea of a stable, I get it, and it probably was, but we think of stables differently. We think of this little like, nativity scene on the lawn yeah. with the little stable sitting in isolation on a mountain top. Um, but actually, most houses would have a stable. Most of them were there were caves, they were built either chiseled into the caves, built rocks, or built alongside to bring animals in when it got very cold in winter or prevent against banditry and things like that. So it would have been 
a room at the side of the house. And women needed to be separate from men once they went into labor. They went into a state of yolda, and that meant that they couldn't be in the same place. So either if they had a room like the red tent, that that we all um pretty sure most of your readers are familiar with the, the listeners are familiar with the red tent concept um of the room of the rooms that you went to during your period so they would have been separate but if there wasn't that then a stable might just have been the bit on the side of the house and so if you got to bethlehem almost certainly the midwife would have been called and what i love the idea is the the you know mary in the catholic church is this very divine and very you know uh rising to heaven with the angels sort of thing and actually the beauty beauty of mary was that she was human that's the point the whole point of mary was that she was human and that 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 you can be human and divine at the same time yes in the the promise of christ too right i think i've had some guests on who are you know yeah, uh, like anthroposophical, interested in you know the anthroposophical interpretation of Christianity. But right, that's the whole promise of it is that it's all yeah. within us. Yeah. And whether you believe that's an ex- that's an external reaching, going to heaven, or an internal transformation of joining the soul and the human, um, but it's it's the divinity and the human at the same. And I wanted to tell her story, and I think it's why so many. People do pray to Mary when they're in trouble. So, and whether that is as a as a Christian or as somebody who has just found their way to Mary as a sacred feminine in another way, is that she is human, that she was. And to, to, to think of her as being scared and being overwhelmed and being a long way from home, but having somebody with her to comfort her and somebody with her to... to um, to support her and care for her, because the well, the magic of Mary is the humanity, is the understanding, is the is the uh, compassion that I think most people feel when they when they talk and, and feel about her. And I think if you think of her as a scared human giving birth, it's it, it, for me it just makes the story stronger, the the amazing transformation. Better. Oh yeah. Yes, and one thing I wanted to tell you too that I, I've been kind of feeling into, and it's been very much like a, a visual or a felt sense, not a, it's, it's an intuitive thing, is um, is this idea of, um, you know, all the lore around Jesus. Uh, I keep feeling and seeing these women <laughs> rising up around him, like, you know, rooted in the earth, like, and of course they were always there, but that those stories, those are so rich, you know, and we, we missed it. We missed all of it because we were only focused on this one piece. And so I, I felt with your story, like the women just sort of like ah, rising up at his birth. And I, I recently interviewed, um, Sophie, Sophie Strand, who's, um, has a book coming out, uh, the Madonna secret next year. And that, you know, is all about. I mean, lots of people touch Mary Magdalene as well, but you know, the, 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 these other women that were all part of the story too. And it's just like, I can feel them like flowers or plants, just like rising up out of the earth, um, beside him and surrounding him. Like you only got one part of the picture and there's so much more here. Well, they were there at the beginning and there at the end. Can I, can I just read 
one bit, that tiny prologue of the book. Is that all right? I would love for you to. Yes, please. Though listening to the stories, you could think he only surrounded himself with men. He seemed to have become invisible. But we were there when he died. When the men, his friends, followers and apostles had fled for fear of the Romans. They hid. Not even there to see him die. To lay out his cold, lifeless body. But I was there. Watching as the sky went dark and the life left him, just as I had been there when he was born and the sky lit up. At the end, I helped his mother wash and wrap his broken, bruised and beaten body. In the same way as 30 years earlier, we had washed and swaddled him as a beautiful newborn baby. I remember so clearly that night when he was born in the company of women. Nothing was the same after that. Something as simple as the birth of a baby brought such pain and yet so much change, so much love. Such a remarkable time, such a baby. I was his midwife. This is my story. So and, good. And it's the, the, the story is about them being there all the way through. It was the women who were there at the beginning. It is the women who were there at the end. This is the women who he appeared to first. And, you know, I did, I did um, delve a bit into Mary Magdalene, not so much in the book, but in my, in my sort of research for the book. Um, and, you know, there is so much that beauty and, and, and wealth and, and power in that story, not the one that we were told, but the, the, the reality. Right. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, it is this, this forgotten history. Yes. This, and I think it is so from Mary being human to the other women of the Bible to the the, the the real the 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 power that we can get in our path to divinity by hearing the stories of others. They you know, you hear this all the time, you know, you you, you need to see it to be it. And slowly, with every single one of these stories, with your stories and, and so many of the stories that are coming out of, of say, Womancraft, but, but rising up around the world, they were pulling back the veil and, and looking again at history and seeing it with a different sight. And I think that when we embrace that, that lost element, which was the, the, the biggest part of it, wasn't it? That it wasn't just men; it was it was both. It was equal. It was as fairer than you could imagine in a society of that age to have been surrounded by so many women in a, in a time that wasn't. That there is a very different um, path there that I think that so many women have been looking for and waiting for and hoping to come out. Mm. And mine's just one of those voices that says, you know, there is a there is a beautiful other story that you haven't heard. Yeah, that's the other thing I was kind of feeling, sensing, just this beautiful stream, flowing water, you know, of stories that we're gathering. And, and I see your work, you know, entering that stream and my work entering the stream. And um, what a beautiful thing, really. Yeah. Well, I, we're almost out of time. I feel like I could talk to you for so long, but I want to ask you one more question. Yeah. Um, to me, this particular time of year, and I know there are different cultures, like, you know, um, perhaps pagan cultures, the start of the year, Samhain, right? But we're in this, like, portal of of time, for me, where there are endings and beginnings. And so, um, 
I, I'm, I'm very enamored with the idea of dreaming the world we want into being, that it has to start with our dreams, our sacred dreams. And so I wonder if maybe you could share what your sacred dream might be for the way that we would approach um, childbirth and the caring of those who give birth, just so we can start to seed it and, and allow that to, to ripple out. So the book is written from the perspective of a Jewish woman, yeah. an ancient Jewish woman. And, spoiler for the book, but one of the things that she says and, and one of her realizations that comes from her mother is that you never know which baby is going to be a special one. A birth is a birth, you know, that she attends so many over the years. And her example is that you never know which baby would be another Moses. Moses being the, the, the you know, so crucial in the survival and the story of the Jewish people. And he started as an ordinary baby. And and every I think if you think in terms, we just hit eight billion, didn't we? We've just had our eighth billion human on this planet. Wow. Any one of them could be the one, could be the special one. And if we greeted every single child like they could be the one who could transform humanity, can you imagine how we do things differently? how differently we would treat their birthing parents, how we would treat infancy, how much more kind and protective we would be around this. And there's um, a Robin Lim who runs uh, a birth clinic in Indonesia. She's an amazing uh, midwife. You know, she says that a peaceful earth starts from a gentle birth, that how we come into this world, how we are greeted, and I think that if we could make birth sacred, if we could remember that every single one of those children, and don't forget, I mean, I work with pregnant women in prison. I work with people who can't afford to um, pay for nice classes. I work for hospitals in between. I cover a really broad array. And any one of those babies could be the one that brings something to the world that the world needs. And if you remember that every time you go into a birth, that this baby has the potential to be the everything and their mother. That's really quite humbling and quite powerful because I would love to see us treat all of each other, um, whatever our race and creed and culture and, and religion lovingly and, and you know, your Christmas wish, world peace. That's the dream, but it starts from recognizing the humanity and the hope that comes with every new baby. Every new baby that's born brings with it the hope of a world transformed. Yes. Oh, I love that so much. And I, I what it makes me think too, again, with more of the the less like very traditional Christian story that I was given growing up, but it, like more um, progressive interpretations, like if you know Jesus and Mary are just they are representatives of the human experience and the divine and human form then every baby is that already like every baby is already that divine expression and instead of just one yeah. like we all become that like I know that's very um no, actually, very idealistic but let's dream big shall we <laughs> no, no I, I'm with you that yeah absolutely absolutely that, that if, if we could see each one as divine, that would change everything. That would change everything. Yes, and that even those small moments of kindness and um, compassion towards each other and the earth, like if we all 
you know, yeah. found our way to that and embrace that. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I was walking the dogs this morning and thinking, and as, as I do, it's a, it's a, it's a classic time. But you know, about how we, I was, I'm looking at the changing seasons. It's November in the UK. It's warm. It's warm. I was out. I didn't even have a coat on this this morning. I had a light. I had not tried a light raincoat on, but I didn't need it for warmth in November. It's not okay. And the the how we treat each other, how we treat the earth, it's all related into how we i think i think you're right how we see the divine how we treat everything as divine and to me you know that that walk in the trees the the, the beautiful countryside that i live in Shropshire is very beautiful um it, it is a reflection of the the great divine the great divinity of nature as well so it, it all ties in it all ties in how we treat each other how we treat the world that's for the birth Mm -hmm. Well, here's to dreaming beautiful, beautiful seeding, beautiful dreams for our future. Um, you know, may it be so. May we find that divinity in, in every baby that's born. And Bridget, I just, I want to thank you so much. I feel like I could just keep talking to you all, all day, but um, I know you, you got things to do and so do our listeners. So I just, I so much gratitude to you for being here. What a, what a lovely, lovely conversation it's been. Thank you, thank you. And I, what I hope, if you're listening to this on the 23rd, that when you, if you, you know, you see a nativity somewhere set up, that somewhere in your head will go, there'll have been a midwife there. Yes! Oh, I, now I want to get a figure. Oh my gosh, you just gave me an idea. We're going to have to raid my kids' Legos and add a midwife to the nativity set that my mother gave me so long. Boy, like absolutely, this. absolutely. <laughs> All right, well. See that moment. Yeah. Bridget's book is The Birthkeeper of Bethlehem, A Midwife's Tale. I will put a link to it in the show notes along with um, all the information that you can find out about her and then a lot of the things that we talked about. I'm going to round up some links for you. And, um, you know, blessings to all of you at this end of 2022. I'm so grateful to each one of you that tunes in. It is such a joy. Like, this wouldn't be much fun if nobody was listening. Well, okay, it'd still be fun for me to be in conversation with all these folks, but it's more fun because you're listening. So thank you. Thank you uh, so much. And um, if you like the show, please uh, give it a good rating. Um, tell your friends about it. Subscribe to it. You can do all those things. And um Probably be back in February of 2023. I'm going to take January off, I believe. So we'll be back with you uh, in a brand new year. Take good care. Home to Her is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the Sacred Feminine. And you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at Home to Her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon. 